We are Memphis Wrestling. Join us live. Sunday, May 28th, is our next free watch party at Dave & Buster's. Watch AEW Double or Nothing with us. It's free. That's Dave & Buster's in Memphis. Sunday, June 4th, is our next live TV taping at the Wrestle Center. Experience the stars of Memphis Wrestling live. June 25th is on sale soon. Saturday, July 1st, watch WWE Money in the Bank with us. It's free at Dave & Buster's in Memphis. Tickets are on sale now. Get yours right now at ChampionshipWrestlingMemphis.com. ArizonaBayCoffee.com. That's ArizonaBayCoffee.com as a sponsor of Shooting the Shiznit. That's right. We now have a coffee blend. A coffee blend on ArizonaBayCoffee.com. Morning Shiznit is a medium roast coffee that is designed to get you up and moving early in the morning. That's right. Before you do anything else, you will need your morning chisnit after the first cup or your last cup of the day. Remember that you make sure to say, love my mama. Go to ArizonaBayCoffee.com today. Free shipping to all listeners at stspod.club. Just a quick reminder, subscriber of $5, $7, or $10 at www.patreon.com slash shooting the shiznit without a G. That's right, shooting the shiznit without a G. This episode is also brought to you by Spunk Loop. Dot com. Remember when you're getting funky like a monkey, if you know what I mean, use Spunky. That's right. Go to www.spunkloop.com and tell them STS Pod sent you. We can all help prevent suicide. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress and also prevention and crisis resources for you and your loved ones. Call 1-800-273-8255. Remember all episodes Memphis in May. Go to stspod.club. Be there. Shooting the shiznit, best little wrestling podcast in the business. Your host BT, and always guess you never know who he'll have next. Shooting the shiznit, shooting the shiznit, best little wrestling podcast in the business. 
shiznit. All right, we're live for 304 Studios in Jonesboro, Arkansas. This is an STS pod dot club production or production, like I like to say. I'm BT, and right over there, well, it says Chainsaw Tony, but I know him better <laughs> as Tony Myers. How are you, Tony? I'm better now. I'm talking to you. We finally made it. Either that or you uh, <laughs> ran out of people to interview and you got me, so... I'm going to tell that story. Uh, look, real quick, Patreon, join Patreon. We're doing a special uh, Memphis in May. Oh, I'm sorry. All episodes Memphis in May. I got to do that so I don't get sued. Uh, and Tony Myers is joining me, but Patreon, you may get some extra questions, some extra minutes of, of Tony and I talking, and also all the other Memphis wrestling uh, stuff that we do there's at least 30 minutes almost on every show so join patreon it's stspod.club and in the right hand corner you have link of all links now tony let me tell this story real quick what i have been telling tony ever since i started this podcast <laughs> hey i'm gonna get you on the podcast and then I used to tell you, when you get back from Japan, I'm going to get you on the podcast. So it become a running joke that I was going to get him on the podcast. And then he sent me, a, I sent him a message. I said, you ready to come on the podcast? This was like a year and a half ago. And you said, oh, I guess you ran out of guests. What you just said just then. <laughs> Did you run out of people? And I was like, no, no. And this Memphis and May is our sixth annual. So I said, well, I might as well quit doing the uh, rib there and tell you I'll bring you on. Uh, but I'm bringing out, I don't know. There's going to be some people out here that know everything. Oh, I know Tony. I did this with Tony, blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of people and and I'm going to start with just your childhood. Don't know anything about Tony Myers and some of the stuff I don't know. So that's the reason I'm asking. Uh, and as, as the title of the flagship show, we are just shooting the shiznit. So how did you start becoming a fan? And we're, me and you met in Memphis, but tell the story where you're from and who were your, uh, who was you following? What what uh, wrestling was you watching as a kid? I was born and raised in Jersey and uh, collected a lot of wrestling magazines growing up, and um, it just became you discovered the different territories and everything, especially in the back of those old wrestling eye magazines. And some of the fans around my magazine, what in the world, but, uh, <laughs> they had so many different printing companies. It wasn't just the Stan West and Bill after magazines. It was just magazines from, it seemed like in the mid in and to the late eighties, there was a plethora of new magazines that came up and some of them patterned after Dave Meltzer's newsletters, you know, it was just, I guess they were trying to cover the whole entire gamut of, uh, of the pro wrestling magazine market that they were trying to corner. But, uh, I skipped to the back of those magazines and I would read in the, uh, in the, in the pages back there that you could actually swap VHS and trade video cassettes with people and, you know, there was, there was people from all these different regions of uh, here in the United States. There's even people overseas, and you could get their local wrestling, too. So I started swapping all kinds of VHS, and uh, eventually, you know, um, Rich Mancuso had 6666 WFAN out of New York City, and 
he had a wrestling uh, talk show on there. It was late Saturday nights. Devon Dudley used to call in all the time. Uh, a bunch of us did that, that wound up becoming wrestlers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so between between those two things right there, I just started amassing a ginormous, as you can see to this day, VHS DVD collection. And uh, <laughs> What is that, man? Come on, tell me what the VHS is. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, I talk about that all the time. And we talked with um, a local guy on uh, Tuesday, and he was talking about, oh, I didn't do VHS trading like you did, BT. Uh, and, and I will, um, I guess the statute of limitations is gone for this. But when I was in college, <laughs> I was... Uh, I was make I was taking donations for those uh for those tapes. I had six VHSs going at all times. You know how that feels. Uh and yeah. and I did a lot of trading. And if it wasn't for the trading, I would have never saw anything. But when you was what was you watching on local television? Who were your favorites there? Oh, the WWF was always, you know, that was always the kingpin. That was always the A number one. But by the time cable TV rolled around, you know, we're getting NWA and um, getting several other promotions, too. Uh, but, you know, it was just a little of everything. To me, it, was, it all fell into the same umbrella of wrestling. And then you would discover uh, the local video store. I, I would rent. Oh, man, Johnny Legend. He produced a lot of the old Memphis Territory stuff. And they did music videos with that. And so, you know, then I stumbled upon Memphis wrestling and I just got hooked on it. And I said, you know, like, who are these people? What, what are these angles? You know, and it was just so wacky and so bizarre. And it was like nothing that I had ever seen before. The angles were That's, a mile yeah, a you're minute. You're so right there, because if you think WWF at the time, Compared to Memphis wrestling, it's like you just stepped in Bizarro world because it's a total different product. It's not something like now you can watch on YouTube, whatever you want to watch, but it was something that was so different and, and you becoming a fan real quick of those guys, right? Yeah. And as time went on, you find out that this guy was somebody else in a different territory. And, you know, um, you, I would meet local fans at the matches that I went to any independent that I could go to. You know, I was like, well, this guy, maybe, maybe I'll see some guys that used to be somebody else in one of those other territories, but you knew it was mostly, <laughs> mostly guys hanging on to their glory that were still wrestling. Uh, you know, just, we got so lucky from the, the local independents around here that we got to see so many guys, so many big name wrestlers. And eventually it, it all coincided with, uh, they needed somebody to help up the help set up the ring. You know, if you wanted it bad enough, you knew you could break into the independence. You know, you just, you would just have to go to shows that were so indie that were so bad or, or that was needing help so bad that they, you know, Hey kids stick, stick this mask on your head or kid collect the people's jackets or ring this, ring this timekeeper's bell or whatever, but uh, kind of getting ahead is of things. But you, yeah. Is that where you, actually trained the first time and actually had matches up there first before you actually yeah, it was had up any here. stuff. John Rezzi's conventions, uh, they would do them at the Reutz Motel, uh, usually in the summertime. And that would, that would be the ultimate collection of people. The names I could drop that went to those just as fans at the time, blue meanie would go to all, all those things. Um, uh, so the guy that became sign guy, Dudley, uh, Joel Gertner, 
I met Joel. I met Joel doing just Lower East Side wrestling, Manhattan. You know, the two of us weren't even. We were hardly teenagers, but we kept running into each other. And then uh, next thing I knew, we're swapping information, all that stuff, and and he put it together. He was like, uh, "Hey, you're the guy that runs that Cactus Jack fan club." And this is. 88 89 when foley was barely getting a name for himself out there and uh you know it was a whole bunch of us i i ran that fan club at the time foley had wanted us to change the name of it to the uh cactus jack appreciation society and now that rings a bell with the uh, some of the modern fans of chris <laughs> jericho Dr- jericho yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but I mean, if you wanted it bad enough, uh, even in reading those magazines, you would see wrestling schools advertised just everywhere. It, it, it just felt like everybody had a wrestling school, but the Monster Factory kept coming up and I knew where Flemington was. So, you know, eventually I stumbled into that when I was, you know, 14, almost 15 years old. And, you know, it, it, you, you can imagine what they told me at the time, because New Jersey had a state athletic commission back then. So they were like, right, so you ah, could, yeah. yeah, you couldn't actually train <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Yeah. You could train doing the general things. Even if you were a referee, you still would have to learn how to take a bump. And, you know, uh, I, I, guess, I guess using the terminology is okay, right? Everybody will be up to speed oh, yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a total <laughs> shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't uh, – uh, there's no you know, case you know, going weird. on. I ran, I ran into – I stumbled upon the kayfabe sheets when I was going to John Rezzi's convention. That's what was my next question. When did you find yeah. the observer in them? So you could, in the back of there, they advertise just publicly. Uh, it's funny because I think back to how many times I saw a wrestling riot in there and that's like right. early nineties, you know? Yeah. And I remember seeing Dave Meltzer at some local matches up here. And of course I knew who he was cause there was a buzz, you know, even the, smartest most hardened fans are hey, dave Meltzer's in the third row and uh <laughs> we got to learn what he looked like and yeah so there was just uh brian hildebrand you know guys all around this area it, it was almost amazing you would go to the meadowlands and you would look around at some of those fans and you'd see the same people over and over you know it's just a hardcore gathering amongst fans had to be like what it was like locally in memphis like you go to the Coliseum on Monday nights and you see half the people that wound up becoming professional wrestlers that were sitting in the yeah, crowd because, or whatever. Yeah, so. that's, I think it's, uh, I've told this story many times that I think that Memphis wrestling in this area, the reason uh, Memphis wrestling is uh, got so many little promotions is because everybody grew up, you know, they want to be Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, and we didn't play on the on the playground, we weren't playing superhero. We was playing. I'm Jerry Lawler. I'm Bill Dundee. I'm <laughs> this. I'm that. Yeah. And and then it was the the everybody knew who Jerry Lawler was. You. It wasn't like who. What are you talking about? So Monday morning was the big deal. We'd f- first talk about wrestling at school, and we would talk about any football that happened on Sunday. But Monday, that was what it was mainly about was, uh, you know, and Tuesday was Monday Night Football. So that was my my life growing up. It was, let's talk about wrestling. And when I got the Observer the first time was during, I think, my last Christmas break. So it was in 1985. I got it. And, and I mean, 1980, yeah, 1985. And then I got it and then went 
to school that after Christmas break, thinking I knew everything about the business and, and that, that I had all the secrets, something that you mentioned that they went to different territories. I was obsessed with real names. You remember when everybody yeah. used to be obsessed with the real names of the wrestlers? And there was a magazine called Wrestling World that was ran by stately Wayne Maynard. And then um, one of the people he had working for him was Carmine Desperado, who, you know, eventually broke into business, who was actually doing double duty. He was writing wrestling. He was taking pictures, but he was also uh, he was also the creator. That was one of his gimmicks. And the other gimmick he had was uh, uh, um, uh, Hubie Marks is the name that he used to write. Like the, the ghost name that he would write under is he would write up all these. And they would wrestling world kind of like rock my brain because I was like, oh, my God, here's everybody's real names laid out in front of us. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Terry Bollet. Huh? <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, yeah. Those were some of those magazines bordered on it. It, it was kind of weird. Like later on, what was the magazine that they had? Was it Wrestling Toxic? That was pretty much like Dave Meltzer's newsletter, but in the form of a magazine. But they I don't had remember Norm the Dewey. name of it, but I remember it. That they didn't, they were a little like a few years ahead of their time in the sense that the internet exploded and smartened everybody up. But at that time, no one really, uh, I think no one really wanted to be smartened up. And here's a magazine that saw the success of, of Dave Meltzer, which was yeah. Dave made a full-time job of it. And he was only, he only had uh, two to 3000 subscribers, but they were thinking, Oh, he's got a, you know, there's a difference between being rich and making a living. And that's what he was doing. I remember him quitting his regular job. His regular job. I remember that too. Yeah. Cause in, had to in do like the observer. Yeah. Yeah. In 86, 87, he was actually brought on to uh, the WWF payroll. And, and that, that like right. all of us just stood around and were like, wow, like it's almost like one of our own is getting a full-time job, you know, in wrestling or whatever, but he continued to write the newsletter. Uh, you know, there was some kind of weird hush money thing with him and them. And, uh, I know that they used to go to him and this shows you the, the real pull that that guy had. I mean, the, the audience base that he had, just how much his, his opinions were respected because he didn't write the cave fib sheets to expose the business. He wrote it to show and to cover pro wrestling. Like nobody had done before as a business, as a whole, like, you know, uh, what was the house? What was the real yeah, but house? It started what as him just learning? trying to get together all the results from all the areas and telling people what was going on. And then, like you said, that's what he started doing. And he also, people don't understand that the observer, now everyone looks at Dave and looks at the observer and goes, blah, blah. He don't know nothing. What, blah, blah, uh, kind of yeah, thing. They try to discredit but it. It was a, they try it was to like discredit trade, what he put down. Trade publication. <laughs> Right, right. It was a trade yeah. publication, right, Tony? It was like it was for the inside, and they they looked at the attendance in each one of the places and decided whether they were going to go work there because the promoters would lie, but the people sitting in stuff today would not lie about the attendance. Yeah, exactly. And it was covered from state athletic commissions, so that's money that they legally paid out. So it was like for once, somebody was exposing the truth on what was happening with professional wrestling and. I cared more about that, more about the business. Uh, you know, I was always going to be a fan. I was always going to, 
you know, you're, you're walking around your house and you just saw Tugboat Thomas just debuted with the WWF and you're walking around in your living room, you're doing this or doing your favorite <laughs> wrestlers mannerisms or cutting their promos in the mirror. There was always going to be that. But for once I got to see like, you know, uh, and, and two, it really opens your eyes as to who is good, who is trying, who is phoning it in, who is lazy during the house shows, all that stuff. Uh, and it was just fascinating to me. I was like, you know, finally someone's speaking truthfully about wrestling and not trying to like brainwash you and, you know, and I not trying to that, tell you. But I think, I yeah. think we were brainwashed to a certain worst, as we say in the South, we was uh, brainwashed to a certain extent <laughs> on people like. You know, the Observer readers, we had this deal where we didn't like Hulk Hogan. Ric Flair was our favorite wrestler. We didn't like um, we didn't like Dusty Rhodes because Ric Flair was We didn't our- like Dusty's booking, yeah. Yeah, we didn't like Dusty's booking. But the idea is if you watch the latest Dusty documentary, no one talks about that. But there was an underlying thing in the business, and it wasn't just us smart fans or the Observer readers. It was the boys in the business. They were just like, ah. Yeah. I hate this book, and Dusty just putting over Even, himself. Dusty just doing this, so yeah. I thought one of the more interesting things that were that was always um, we th- there was a reason why we didn't like it, and even the casual fans would kind of pick up on it. Even you could feel it from them. And you're in New Jersey, or you're around Philadelphia. You know, Philly was like an hour and a half from where I grew up, and you know. Even the casual fans would pick up on the utter distest for <laughs> certain people. But, uh, and too, like, even people around us, it was like we almost didn't want to talk too much because that was all stuff that we went out of our way to to get and know and acknowledge, you know. And, um, to even the casual fans, it was like we didn't want their stupid questions. We didn't want to have to put up with explaining <laughs> to a normal fan. You know what words like angle men. Yeah, like I said, we knew it all. Yeah, we're an observer. We know it all now. So it It was almost like we wanted to. (laughs) It was almost like we were trying to protect what business there was to protect from people that weren't smart. Because then you'd have to. Well, how much money did these guys really earn? And you're like, oh. You know, you can't explain to somebody from a business perspective. I never, you know, I never understood all that, but you're right. I never thought about the idea that, that we were, or, or not really understood, <laughs> but thought about that. We were, we were like, say, uh, cave you know, Maven, cause we right. didn't want to tell anybody else anything. So at first you just wanted to, you were so happy that you had this knowledge that, you know, Oh, that's Hector Guerrero is laser Tron or whatever. Uh, it led to a funny story. Brian Christopher told me a funny story, him and Kevin growing up where there was some guy in the second row and Brian goes, next time you see Kevin, just start going laser Tron, Hector Guerrero. He goes, he'll, he'll know what I mean. And apparently there was some sheet reader down in Memphis that was going Hector Guerrero, laser Tron. And it was like, it almost, <laughs> it, 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 it was kind of like that for us, you know, like the, when Terry Taylor had, and I was already like actively wrestling, but when um, when the NWA, when WCW had come to the Meadowlands and Terry Taylor got the crap kicked out of him by Stan Hansen in about three minutes, everybody was doing rooster curls at him <laughs> and everything. And this is after he left the WWF, so even those people wouldn't let him 
let him go of that. You know, they, they, we did they some really crazy things on those, uh, Memphis trips. Uh, the Philly people came Memphis trips. We, uh, Kevin or Kerry Von Eric was in the ring and we chanted, just say no, uh, oh stuff God. like that. You know, I mean, it was, it was like a smart aleck kind of fans, but we knew everything. I think that's funny. Right around the time. Before I came down to Memphis full-time, I remember going down to uh, Louisville, um, Louisville Coliseum on a Tuesday. I just wanted to see what a house show like there. And <laughs> by this point, I was, even before I had a license, I was going to my brother. My I have a brother who's five years older than me. I was going to his friends and, and giving them gas money and, you know, mowing lawns or, you know, when I could start working at the local golf center, <laughs> picking up golf balls. Um, it, it, you know, I would get a hold of them and I would find a way or I'd take a train or, you know, and a lot of this stuff I would have to do kind of like behind my parents back. Um, <laughs> but eventually, you know, I got their nod and, and they were cool with it. But, uh, so that's when my brother's friends were coming along and some of them had hung around locally. I remember going down to Louisville, uh, Kentucky, and I'll never forget. They were waving it was after Jerry Lawler got into trouble in 93. They were waving handcuffs at him in like the second row, like a bunch of wise ass. <laughs> yeah. So it, people like that, you know, I mean, we, we almost couldn't help ourselves. But remember the whole group of fans um, that they put plastic, they put paper bags on their head as the ghosts of WCW passed. When Jim Hurd was like getting right, rid of yeah, everybody. There was there. That, and it was almost. <laughs> Yeah, there was that section of fans that that uh, because we were smartened up, there was that I think it was a mentality or an ego that we knew it, we knew just like they did. I I one time, you know, the Nightmares were one of my favorite teams growing up, and I knew so how they underrated. were. Yeah, so underrated. So we're in Carothersville, Missouri, and it's an outside show. And Ken Wayne is in the ring. The nightmare is in the ring. And I yell, hey, Ken. You know, Ken has his mask on. I say, hey, Ken. <laughs> and you know, when someone yells, hey, Tony, what do you do? You turn around. So Ken turns around in the ring and says, what? <laughs> no. Yes, oh, he my did. God. I loved it. It was awesome. Uh, but then. <laughs> Uh, so tell me, how did, I mean, you're a Jersey boy. How did you end up in, I want to talk about how we met, how we've been friends for so long, but let's take a quick commercial break and we come back. I'm going to talk about your trip to Memphis and how you, we found each other kind of thing. That sounded kind of uh, how we oh, found yeah. each other. So there the you go. The journey begins. <laughs> <laughs> like to welcome ArizonaBayCoffee.com. That's ArizonaBayCoffee.com as a sponsor of Shooting the Shiznit. That's right. We now have a coffee blend. A coffee blend on ArizonaBayCoffee.com. Morning Shiznit is a medium roast coffee that is designed to get you up Moving early in the morning, that's right, before you do anything else, you will need your morning shiznit. After the first cup, or your last cup of the day, 
remember that you make sure to say, love my mama. Go to ArizonaBayCoffee.com today. Free shipping to all listeners at stspod.club. Are you enjoying the episode? Well, Cash App us. That's right. Dollar sign BTSTS. You don't have Cash App? Download it and get $5. That's right. $5. That's dollar sign BTSTS. Dollar sign BTSTS. Our Uber Eats code Eats Dash Brian T two four seven nine O U E. That's Eats Dash Brian T two four seven nine zero U E. Use that code and get twenty dollars off a twenty five dollar order. Mysterious production. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Spunk Lube. Spunk Lube is the perfect blend of water and silicone. It is an all-purpose personal lubricant that can be used for any occasion. You will love the natural feeling and look of it. It is safe for sensitive skin. Go to spunklube.com and tell them shooting the shiznit safe. Remember, all episodes, Memphis, in May. Go to stspod.club. Be there. This is the first time that your name was ever dropped to me. Like, personally, like, you know, we would all chit-chat. There was a guy named Perry Smith who I unearthed on Facebook a few years ago. Even guys like him, when they would go to the John Rezzi conventions, we would just talk about Dallas wrestling. We would talk about, you know, they had a Zodiac, a guy under the mask as a Zodiac. And right, right. at the time we had the Zodiac killer up here. So we were like, this is just, anyway, um, he would just keep dropping names, dropping names. And Dave Meltzer himself dropped your name to me. And he goes, there's a guy that puts out the wrestling riot. And he goes, and he, and he covers Memphis in some real detail. So, I think I was one of your early subscribers as, as far as that goes under my legal name. I mean, I tried wrestling under my legal name and then nobody believed that it was my real name. <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, yeah. You were, uh, we caught it tape update at first and it was just yeah. tapes. And then we started, ended up doing a wrestle, right. But it was through the observer that me and you actually met and, t- and talked, uh, and then it was it was years before we actually met in person, wasn't it? It was the first before time we met in person. Doing, yeah, when you it was, was always by proxy. Shows. It was always yeah because um, toward the end well, of hold the on, hold on, hold on. Let's let's rewind it just a little bit. How did you? <laughs> what made you come from Jersey to Memphis? What what's going through your mind at the time? I had always been a huge, huge, huge Memphis fan, and Dennis Carluzzo in Jersey. If it wasn't Dennis Carluzzo. Before ECW was Tri-State Wrestling, TWA, they were bringing in Stan Lane. They were bringing in Jim Cornette. They were bringing in Jerry Lawler, Eddie Gilbert. Um, I remember Al Perez for some reason. Um, 
Yep. Austin Idol, uh, Adrian Street. They were bringing in so many of the Memphis guys over in TWA. And Dennis Carluza would use Jerry Lawler, Eddie Gilbert, Stan Hansen, Terry Funk. So the more that I would, you know, and, and this Memphis obsession keeps growing as time is going on. I've already had a couple of professional matches. Um, I went, the first place I went to was Larry Sharp's Monster Factory. So I told you some of that before, how I stumbled into it. Because, you know, you keep hearing Monster Factory, Monster Factory. Even in the magazines, you hear Monster Factory. Oh, yeah, that's what I was fixing to say. They were huge in the mag magazines. Because Larry yeah. would let them come in, take photographs. He wanted to get his people over. Plus, Larry was a Larry was a businessman. He was a worker. He was getting his school over. Right. And he was getting himself over more. So, yeah. Two... Um, also, the key to this whole thing was a guy named Professor Bill Elliott, or Professor Elliott. Professor Elliott Marin was the guy's name. And, you know, I told him, hey, I've been going to, and he goes, hey, they're starting up another wrestling school up there, too. Mike Masters, Rocky Jones, 1990, was launching ECPW. And then from there, you heard about Mike Sharp had opened up a school, so we go there. Uh, Bill DeMont, Lodi, New Jersey, was in a racquetball court. Uh, so that was four different schools right there in New Jersey. Plus you could always go to Johnny Rods. I went up there like once or twice. There was nothing I could really do because, you know, he would charge like $25 a workout because, you know, I wasn't actually legal, you know, as this right, is going right, on. Right. Yeah. 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 As I'm starting to train, I'm already having like a match here and there. I'm already having like matches, you know, just local stuff that was so, or stuff that was so small up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, they were using Joel Gertner when he was like 14, 15 years old. They were using him as a manager, and he went by the name of Joey Jaguar. So you could see, like, now all of us, Daryl Streety was another one. Now all of us are starting to meet from being guys that read the newsletters and saw each other's names under the results in magazines when you would submit the results. Now, you know, we're having to put together who's who. Because there's our legal names that we dealt with each other. And then, you know, right. to find out that, yeah, Louis Dangerously, <laughs> Lou, um, oh gosh, I was never good with his long Italian last name. Uh, but guys like that, you know, you would learn, oh, that's that guy's legal name. Oh my God. You know, he, I, I see he was writing into the Observer looking for videotapes or looking for magazines, old magazines or whatever. So it, it as small as the community might have seemed, it was like everybody was spread out all over America. And everybody was starting to get into business at some spot. I was taking pictures, selling to Pro and Illustrated. All of us that were smart fans, quote unquote, ended up getting, a lot of us ended up getting in the business. Uh, you was talking about the Observer, uh, people writing in the Observer, and then you already mentioned him earlier, uh, was uh, Stately Wayne Manor. He did Wrestling World, but he was Ernie Santilli. Uh, in the yeah. Wrestling Observer, remember that he would write those big oh my God, letters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is, is some of what what really blew it open to me was I went to a local show at Madison High School, which is only one town away from me. Uh, it was the end of my freshman year, and I noticed that there was a typo when I sent it in on, on all the match results, there was like three or four names I didn't get or couldn't pronounce. There was a duplicate. Cause I was like, 
well, I better keep my eyes open. Maybe somebody is going to send in these guys' legal names and names or whatever, and I'll learn who this guy was that I thought was somebody else or whatever. So what happened was it was a duplicate of what was printed in the Observer, and I'm like, oh, my God. The people with all the magazines, the, the, what they call the after mags, were just plagiarizing all the results. And it just like, well, you know, that's what they do now. Have you ever noticed that on Friday, Friday afternoon, you'll start getting all these websites that say, oh, we're, we have learned. Well, you just got the observer this morning on, uh, you know, you got it mailed yeah. to you with the eight, you know, on the online, I keep saying online observer, but, but that's what <laughs> I read now compared to the paper. Do you still get the paper or do you read the online version? I just, people will send me stuff because oh, okay. I have so much, I have so yeah. much in response, you know, to send to them. And if I had to sub- subscribe to everything, like I would have your Patreon, I would have like everybody's Patreons. I would have Dave Meltzer's newsletter and all that stuff. But like if something comes up that's of interest and there even became uh, several points in time where he would print something negative about me and, you know, I would go off on Dave and I'd be like, what the hell, man? I've been one of your most loyal guys or I tell him that's not what happened or that's not the truth because right. he got, yeah, he called my match yeah. uh, this one. He couldn't say abortion anymore. So he said the word that, the word that we don't call that we can't say anymore was BTS. Was that the BT Express in the ECW? What what became the ECW Arena? Is that the one? Uh, or was that was something that, to Because it was at a school. Yeah, it was at a school. There is a there's a movie Silver Linings. It was actually filmed right there where we wrestled. But yeah, it was. I was in the opening match with a gazillion people on a show. So it was fun to always say I was on an opening match with, uh, I, I always Jackie wondered how on planet earth. You, I, I always wondered how on planet earth you wound up in Philly, but I guess that's, that'd be for when I interview you or something. <laughs> if I eventually yeah, get my yeah, own Yeah, It was because of the time that was a benefit. Yeah. It was a benefit. I knew Dennis, all these people you mentioned, it's like, I got connected with them because of rest of radio, uh, that yeah. was doing that's how I really got connected with Lawler is because of wrestling radio. Uh, Carmela Panfield and uh, and uh, Joe Joe Gertner, there, not Gertner, uh, Goodhart, Joe Goodhart. Goodhart where yeah. That was, yeah, that's how I got connected with a lot that's of that's Specter whose name I went, I, I meant to drop between him and Dennis Caraluzzo was bringing in Eddie Gilbert and Jerry Lawler. So this dates itself. So I would go up to Eddie Gilbert and I'd make him these eight hour compilations. Or I'd hand him two or three master copies of videotapes of him in every territory. So it wasn't before long, I started getting in good with Lawler, but Eddie Gilbert was the one that was, you know how willing Eddie was to talk to anybody reading newsletters, writing newsletters. Eddie just was fascinated by pro wrestling that much. And Eddie and he Gilbert was, he then, did cassette wrestling news. We've had it on the show on the yeah. feed. He did an episode of cassette wrestling news way before it was, it was okay to talk about the inside, but he was, he, he loved it. <laughs> Jeff Osborne talks about this, about the way, well, JD McKay also, he just loved the business. He loved everything about yeah. it. He was the biggest fan ever. Uh, and the weird thing, like even that name that you just dropped right there, Jeff Osborne wound up doing in Evansville, Indiana. Didn't he wind up doing some of the first like MMA? First, uh, first MMA uh, independently was hook and shoot. And then he did some of the very first yes. 
uh, girl versus girl matches in the United States. Uh, he had all the, the girls that you see from, uh, you know, from the, not right now, but a long time when they were coming in, like the Ronda Rousey's and Shayna Baszler and people like that. Uh, very, he was using, very successful, but you know what happens? It's the same thing that happened in wrestling is that when you have something successful, like he did with hook and shoot, then you got all the other, you got 20 more shoot, coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You got 20 more that aren't it as good, on, but they'd rather. Yeah. 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 I might be actually be able to find it right here. The VHS, there was a VHS days ago that I pulled out just like this and on it, like names like, Jeff Osborne, people out there wouldn't know or they wouldn't, but there's such a, a a link to it because I pulled out a videotape like this and there it was. It was his P.O. box and everything. Norm Dooley. Norm Dooley would cross. Oh my God, Norm Dooley. Yeah. Norm Dooley was like the master. I mean, he had more Memphis videos, local videos. He had more. I, I was trading with him and getting more stuff. When I lived down in Memphis, uh, when I first moved down in 94, um, I knew that I was going to move down let's there. Let's tell anyway. the quick Norm Dooley story. Norm Dooley and Jim Cornette are the two guys that came up with the the infamous Meltzer star system. Five-star system, uh, yeah. And it was a four-star system at the time, and Dave changed it to five-star. But Norm was, Norm was so smart. I got some stuff from him I could find where you couldn't and find I mean, stuff it's, from it's, anyone it's, else, yeah. I'm sorry, but you know, like we gloss over names like that, and people don't. Weasel Dooley, he, his his nickname yes, was Weasel yes. because he had facial features. <laughs> he, he looked like a weasel. But uh, so many, and I, I remember one of the greatest stories I ever read was like a buddy of mine out in the Midwest. He had met up with a diehard wrestling fan, and and both of them had read the sheets. And this is before you could be online before Prodigy really started taking off. Like right, Prodigy right. was there in 92, 93. That's when my world was opened up to that. And, and even then it, it wasn't as, as you know, if you would see somebody again and again at the same wrestling matches, you would assume they were somebody or the wrestlers would use them in a high spot. And you're like, that person right there has something to do with inside the, the professional wrestling business. You know, you wouldn't, you, it's like you knew that they had something to do with it, but you didn't know what they had to do with it. You just knew that like, oh, okay, like uh, go to this person, like introduce yourself or whatever. And you figured eventually you'd get somewhere. But uh, it, it's funny because we gloss over names and you don't realize like Jeff Osborne alone, like what a huge impact that he had on, yeah, hook and shoot, you brought it up. It just seems like names were glancing and 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 going over, but boy, you could we've do an had entire Jeff, podcast. You know, he comes on with with cassette wrestling news, and we talk. We've done nine episodes coming up with ten, I think, and we talk about that. And, and here I here, here here I am, the first time on here with you, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm well, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. I'm no, interrupting. He, he, what we did is we got we're doing similar to what you did. He sent me a box of cassette wrestling news. And I'm taking the cassette and I'm transferring it to uh, so people can hear the the cassette about the stuff that they did back then. And we talk about the idea. You know, Stone Cold called his cassette wrestling news the very first podcast. It was really the first, and it really was. He was like the one guy. Uh, 
Let's talk about Memphis, though. Why did you just – I knew he was a big fan, but when you arrive in Memphis, this New Jersey guy, what kind of reception do you get? How do you get involved with the Memphis promotion and stuff like that? Everybody initially hated my guts, and they probably still do to this day. But um, <laughs> Jerry Lower knew that I was a correspondent of Dave Meltzer. He knew for years. He remembered me trying to break in in Jersey and remembered seeing me up there. But – um, I was like public enemy number one. He would tell the other guys in the locker room, hey, don't don't tell that kid nothing. He reports to the newsletter. It's like, well, if if I did that, I'd be accused of killing the business. Why would you keep me hanging around? And right, I didn't realize, right. you know, they were most of that was they were just busting balls or whatever. They weren't really, you know, they, they might have known I slipped some information out here or there because you know there there comes a point where you're so frustrated, you're trying to get somewhere and you don't care if it's, you know, as long as it's truthful, you don't care about taking a shot at somebody. You know, when you're young and stupid, you don't care about that kind of thing. But oh, yeah. I mean, that's it's the reason why I got on the outs with law the first time was because I was mouth, I was putting, getting information to Dave or, or really just saying stuff on the yearbook. I talked about how he, he in Jonesboro, he in local shows, Lawler didn't work, didn't do anything but hide the chain or you know something like that, and and that's why we yeah. got on because he hated it. Uh, something that the Memphis promotion until recently, and we talked about this on the phone, I guess a couple months back. That you know I was always the Memphis kayfabe guy, and man, you weren't gonna let him do anything, and it was just weird because. I mean, the whole business was exposed during some of that incarnations of Memphis wrestling, and no one even still didn't want anything to do with, uh, you know, what <laughs> can Brian Tr Trammell do for us kind of thing. You come into yeah. the – do you, what do you start doing? You start doing the ring. You start training with somebody. How do you get uh, started doing regular it's shows? The same thing that wound up happening when I started going over series. I go over there. And uh, in this case, I came down to Memphis and um, Eddie Gilbert was already gone. You know, it was one of his in and out, in and out. Well, I didn't know that was the very last time that he went was just weeks before I arrived in 94. I finished County College that spring and then that was it. I moved down to Memphis full time because I knew like I knew one way or another. I Memphis was a place next to japan that was my destination that's where i wanted to be that's where i wanted to go it was one of the last surviving territories and you know uh, i saw the writing on the wall i was like they already have i knew they already had the developmental deal with the wwf and i go well and plus it's um just like the reason that they have fedex as its headquarters uh it's so centrally located that you can go anywhere from memphis but um i felt i had an end through eddie gilbert and I just knew that I'd eventually, and then, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, try to get a hold now. Now this guy, Randy Hales, was booking. Randy Hales hated my guts from day one. He was another one. He, he felt that I was like one of those ECW, uh, Jersey, Philly, smart mark, you know, idiot guys or whatever. Randy Hales hated my guts from the very, and it, it never got any better over all the years. I guess because I was labeled as like uh, a news. Oh, he hate, yeah, he hated me. Then we we've we've uh, smoothed things over, and then and then he's mad at me again. <laughs> Apparently, he's mad at me now because I I provide content for Memphis Wrestling. I don't talk to him, and he's just a he's a real 
strange individual. But the thing, you know, I'm not trying to knock nobody, but the thing I never understood was you're such a big time mark of Memphis that you think that you could be some kind of aid to it, some kind of good that you could do for it. And Randy always felt that way about himself. And that's the way I always saw myself. And especially moving from Jersey after I got my, uh, you know, the, the associate's degree in college, broadcast journalism. Now I was going to be at Channel 5 every 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 um, Saturday. So I figured I could probably get an internship there, you know, from broadcast journalism. I could go in, I could do that, or I could do voices. Or There's, you know, so many faucets with Fox had 209 affiliates all across America at the time. So I'm like, well, there's Channel 5 right there. I could, I could get in. I could find a way in. Um, so eventually, you know, I wound up getting booked for them. <laughs> and the and the the first guy I wrestled was Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. And then from there, you know, it was uh, oh you wow, know, going on up, TV. Who was yeah. you tagging? Who was were you tagging with somebody? Fred James has long since passed away, and and Fred was a very simple minded guy, and I met him doing the independence around Memphis, but um, Fred didn't have an overall grasp of wrestling you know he has a brother and a cousin that's involved now and it's not me saying anything bad about him the rowdy rebel fred james is a guy that if you ever met him you just you knew what he was he wanted to be jerry lawler from day one i mean he would wear the same type of trunks and everything and you know he was just a, a guy around the memphis area or whatever but um was you, never you was working tv from memphis but you you said all the other promotions around Memphis, they were considered outlaw back then. Was you outlaws, working yeah. outlaw shows then? Yeah. Then going to Memphis TV to work. Cause I just, I had to get the dust knocked off of me cause I had moved from Jersey, came down, came down South. So, um, when I asked Randy Hales, I'm like, well, what can I do? That won't be a conflict of interest. And he said, I'm good friends with Don Baez. He doesn't run any of my towns or whatever. Okay, so then I went uh, across the bridge, hooked up with Don Bass, gave him a bunch of VHS of me wrestling all over Jersey, New York. I had been down in Indianapolis, too, by that point for Burt Prentice, Mike Samples, all those people. So, you know, the newsletters, they helped you find out who was running regularly. Because, like, me yeah, and Flash yeah. Flanagan, yeah, me and Flash Flanagan about the same age. I saw that, you know, he was down there. And then when I learned that he was only 18, you know, 17, 18 years old. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I got another guy like me. But um, yeah, it it was, I wanted to make sure because I had heat with the Memphis office immediately. Uh, like I said, upon meeting me, Randy Hells hated my guts. But I guess I always lean back on, you know, Eddie Gilbert would always put in a call or put in a word for me. And uh, it didn't go well through Doug because, you know, Doug just saw me as another guy that didn't, belong you know that had to earn its stripes to be in wrestling you know just I, I was that one guy that everybody looked at and they were like you know he doesn't belong around here or show him how rough it is or put you in the ring with coco Ware, who would beat the hell out of you you know it was all this was you know uh, that's that's how they gauged who belonged and who didn't belong because the beatings were bad or the moondog stuff and you know it, beatings could be even worse by the week but that that was, you know, hey, if this kid comes back after this ass kicking, maybe it was meant to be with him. Did you That's but at one point you went from 
you turned it you you did a mask gimmick. I can't remember the the name. It starts with an H. What was the I can see that I'm horrible. My memory's horrible. But you know oh, mask gimmick. Huh. You did get a huge push, but you got more of a push on TV with that, right? Way more. There was a couple pushes before that, but that was supposed to be the the end all be all big push was for the super hysteria thing because I had been doing the moonsault and the flips and all that stuff for as long as I had been doing it. And, you know, that was supposed to be my huge big time break after, you know, being on Memphis TV three, four years. Not only that, uh, like Brian Lawler had explained it to me, he goes, you know, you screwed up. You came in here without a mask. He goes, why weren't you just doing jobs under a mask? Then you could have spread your wings and flew away. He's like, every time now that they find something for you, don't you notice that it's under a mask? That it's not as you. And I always thought, well, there's, there's more levels to having a mask. You could lose your hair. You could lose the mask. You know, there's always the identity thing or whatever. Then you go under a different mask, you know? Yeah. And uh, the lady Kathy used to make everybody's tights. That was down there in, um, oh, what was the name of that? Horn Lake? Was it Horn Lake, Mississippi she was from? I but she would make yeah, all these I don't different. Her, so. Yeah, she, she'd make all these different masks and all these. And eventually, uh, Bill Dundee cursed her out once and, and she left and never came back. <laughs> but <laughs> in fact, I, I went to get some new tights made up in 99. And she had told me, she was like, uh, I don't do wrestling no more. Before that, she was working on strippers' clothes, and she said the wrestlers were even well, worse. Stripper to clothes, than wrestlers, strippers. yeah, pretty much the same. Yeah, thing. there you go. <laughs> yeah, like the movie The Wrestler, which God, I hated that movie. <laughs> I know all my friends were in it and everything, but God, I hated that movie. But yeah, uh, so you're so, in Memphis. You're doing all the you, you're doing all the outlaw towns, but you get uh, a semi push there with. Uh, it's as hysteria, super hysteria. It's kind of a luchador gimmick. You're doing all the flips and flops. And it was this the same time that Kevin decided he wanted to be Kevin Lawler decided to be the yellow jacket. Did you ever wrestle the yellow jacket on TV? Yellow jacket. I should send you the link. I have, uh, several matches. One of them is, uh, <laughs> me and him against Steve Dahl and, uh, and build on D <laughs> and oh, Lawler's wow. doing commentary. Yeah, I have to watch that. Yeah. And Jerry Lawler's doing commentary. So Lawler's doing oh, commentary. Man. His own that's awesome. getting his ass yeah. kicked Kevin, in the job uh, guy match. Yeah. I love it. I can send Kevin you now. I got, I got the, uh, the thing free over here. This is people yeah, are chiming yeah. in as I'm, and I'm, it's like, I can't respond to them. Of course I'm on here with you. So if you're out there, <laughs> if they're Kevin listening bought live, the like, body suit, right? Remember when Ke- he bought the body yeah. suit for yellow jacket and he, he put the body no. suit on and it looked like he was big and muscular. And I, that's what I remember yeah. about the yellow jacket. Yeah. I remember I we're at TV. I loved it. We're at, yeah. We're at TV. It, it was pretty creative. All the tights that he would come up with it and everything, which why the hell am I spending my time putting Kevin over? Anyway, no, I don't know. <laughs> no. We're putting Kevin over. I don't know. He, you know, Kevin. I, I sent him a text. My last text I sent Kevin was, <laughs> Kevin, why do you always have to be an asshole? So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but the, it's I funny because Kevin was one of those guys that you know Brian took it and, and did with it. Kevin was kind of the. I always I kid with him about this, but you know this. You're talking about the black sheep. He was really the black sheep yeah. of that family. And then you, you, uh, you and Kevin were kind of friends during this time, and it didn't make it. 
It, Bill Dundee told me it was because of Kevin that he didn't like me at the time because me and Kevin were friends. I was like, I thought it was the kayfabe sheets. He goes, no, it's because, it was because of Kevin. So uh, Kevin was also – he was also So uh, what would wrestling. you consider your big – go ahead. No, he was also uh, – he was wrestling in Brighton at the time under a different – under another different mask. So he was doing Outlaws too. But yeah, he was wrestling in Brighton, Tennessee at the time. Remember, David Milliken had that town up and going and running. Also, too, I was the Wolverine, which was the Wolfman gimmick. When they had that guy, Sean Venom, Sean V, from um, who I knew way back in the day. And right, um, right. five years prior in Indianapolis, Indiana. And they had the whole feud with Mike Samples brought in the Wolverine to, you know. And Tony Falk did in some of the spot shows. But yeah, um, Dr. Death, that was another one where they had me booked all around Marion, Arkansas, all, all these different towns and everything. Uh, Dr. Death, where I had the stethoscope and everything and how you would imagine how a did doctor you, would look. Did you at the time, were you still part of the, cause it, were you still part of the ring crew or had you come up to the point to where you didn't have to uh, set up the ring and do all that to, to wrestle because they used to do that a lot with the young guys that worked the open the matches. You, you're part of your job is arriving and putting the ring up. Oh, you'll also get to wrestle on the third match, but, but we, yeah, then we need you to take the ring down. So with all the different masks and everything. And, you know, I would always have a referee shirt. If somebody would let me borrow one or just carry a white shirt out there and referee and that Eddie Gilbert always told me, he was like, you know, Buddy Wayne been doing that ring. You know, it, it was so weird talking to Eddie Gilbert because his natural voice was so much deeper. Like, his real voice was so much deeper than, oh, I'm Eddie Gilbert, Jerry Lauer, I'm going to be here. You know, <laughs> right, it, it just kind of, right. like, freaked me out always. But he told me, he was like, get over with Buddy Wayne, help Buddy do that ring. He's like, he's got a real young son that's helping him, which – at the time, wound up being Aubrey, and then later on, it was Greg. Uh, so there was that whole entire, from the time I got down to Memphis, I was helping Buddy Wayne with the ring. And then on top of it, um, when Jerry bought his own ring, because Buddy Wayne had quit. Buddy Wayne had wanted more money or something. They got into some kind of spat. And um, they wound up, or he wound up, Lawler wound up getting his own ring. And you remember downtown Bruno was hauling the ring and he was putting it up and down. So since like Buddy Wayne had quit in 95, yeah, I 96. Remember that. Yeah. And from the minute Bruno started doing that ring, I was constantly helping Bruno because Dennis Carlos told me, he goes, Bruno's a cool MFR is what he called him. He goes, Bruno's right, a cool right. dude. He goes, him and Nate the Rat, he goes, they helped me out so much when I keep went down there to Memphis. I've known him for years. And so, you know, I was there to help Bruno with that. And Bruno taught me how to put up and down the ring. Um, but the thing was, he never wanted to do the ring. He just, he, he had had it. He was sick of it. They were jerking his guys around, he felt, you know, and treating them like field hands, yelling at them all the time. The only money they could make other than the ring was selling programs. So he just felt the whole thing was unfair, and he always tried taking care of those people. I was one of those people, you know. Uh, Bruno booked me for, you know, he was the one that was booking a lot of the Memphis job boys. 
So he was the one that was putting me in there with Sid Vicious, with Lawler, with Doug Gilbert, Tommy Rich, all I'm those sorry. guys. Sid Vicious, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so God. you're down in Memphis, you're running, and you end up uh, – you're, I'm trying to get you to the certain point here. Uh, where you you're kind of getting a push. You, what makes you think? What gives you the thought that I know you get a shoot job, you do a shoot job, plus you're doing wrestling. But what makes you think? Well, I'm 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 fucking done with Memphis wrestling. I'm done with these guys. I got. Oh, also tell us. I, I've uh, promoted this a couple times. There was also a promotion called TAJJ. Was that right? And you was oh, yeah. part of that, right? That was years and years later. That was two thousand three. Yeah, that was like two thousand two. But you'd already quit Memphis wrestling by that time. You'd already give up on on everyone. That was it. Just the idea that you knew you weren't never never going to get a push or do anything. No, the big push came, and maybe. Two, three months later, that's when Larry Burton came in. So the big oh, push yeah. happens. Um, Bruno doesn't want to do the ring, but now every time Bruno turns around, he's got nothing to do. They've hired Tony um, Tony Freeman. Oh, God. They hired Larry Burton. You want to hear a damn story? Larry Burton walks into a friggin' Chick-fil-A or, or one of those places. Um, he walks into and he sees this kid behind the counter and he goes, Hey, you know, you got a good voice. Have you ever thought about and and they put this goof on TV. That's the guy that Bruno eventually like shoot attacked on live Memphis TV. Bruno, um, they had come to me. He, he, here's the entire thing, how it really happened. I'm getting $150 a night to put up the ring. I'm getting $80 a night to put it up at the Coliseum, which eventually they started running the Big One Expo Center. And I'm getting $50 to tear it down, $80 to put it back up. Then they started using Jerry's, you know, ring on some of those occasions too, $150 a night. So the boys are, you know, like one night I walked in and I'm feeling good. I'm doing double duty. I'm getting ready. And Laura goes, why do you, why do you squint so much? You need glasses. And I go, I don't need glasses. I drink out of the bottle. You know, here I am just, you know, right, right. Boom, I had that one in the can. And, and all of a sudden Laura looks at me, goes, you know, real wise ass. And he goes, you know, tonight. And it was a Buddy Wayne town because Buddy Wayne didn't want to haul the ring, his own ring, to his own house shows. He was having me do it. I remember having this big, long fight with Ken Wayne. I'm like, that ring right there, right there, because it was on VHS. I had my wife with a camcorder. And I go, you're going to tell me that's your dad's ring. You've put that ring up 10 million times. That's Jerry Lawler's ring. I was like, I know. I hauled it there. He's like, why would my dad run a house show? I'm like, he did. He did. As God is my witness, he did. Aubrey Wayne could back me up actually on that too. Cause it was one less thing that Aubrey had to worry about because Aubrey was starting to break in as a referee at the time. So anyway, Larry Burton and Lawler sit me down and they go, they cut me back from one fifty to a hundred dollars a night. And they said, you got to get rid of Bruno's old ring crew to make this happen because that's $50 right there that you're paying out anyway. So it's like, you'd get all the money, but that hundred dollars might be enough and at this point, it's my full-time job, Memphis Wrestling. I'm going to Louisville. I'm going to Nashville. I'm going to, you know what I mean? And when I'm not wrestling, you know, Kevin Lawler's and Larry Burton's here going, you got a guy like Tony Myers just sitting home today. He could be putting up posters and flyers and, you know. So I would 
branch out and try to go to the local gas stations and pass out things or, you know, get some buzz going. At this point, we're at the Big One Expo Center. So then, of course, Bruno and I get sideways because he's like, you should have told him that you were going to quit. You were going to quit. I'm the one that taught you how to put up the damn ring. And I said, I wound up doing the ring because now Bruno was a part-time referee at the WWE. So it's just like, it was just this, everywhere I turned, I was like, it's just pressure, it's stress. Then uh, I go to wrestle Jamie Dundee on live TV, debuting the Mexican gimmick. Stayed up all night, did a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing at the time. <laughs> and those those habits started creeping in. And um, I had just had it. And I saw the territory fall in the shit anyway. Whoop. Am I allowed to curse? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'll keep it to a minimum, I promise you. But, yeah, I saw the entire territory starting to collapse. And I'm like, this is going nowhere. I could get a regular job and be happy. I have had my fill of wrestling. I'm done. And I quit. Literally, I quit that day. And I remember calling Bruno. I remember thanking Bill Dundee. I was like, thank you for everything. And he goes, oh, you're leaving? And I was like, that's got to be a, a real telltale sign when a guy moved all the way from Jersey is now making a full-time living hole in the ring. When that guy quits, I mean, everybody knew it was, it was all falling to pieces anyway. But um, I quit. And at the time, you know, I'd not regularly, every now and then back then, I was going to Japan because of the whole Eddie Gilbert. He had got me in with Wing and... By the time I arrived there, he had quit wing, but <laughs> PWC and IWA Kokosai and all these Japanese indies are springing up all over the place with the success of FMW. So um, I was like, I don't need wrestling in America. I could do it locally just to stay in shape, but I'm going to go to Japan and I'm going to just continue. I'll get my fix there. The TAJJ thing happened when, uh, 2001, 2002, um, Rashad Devon, Rashad Brown, who I broke in, um, he just, he seen me one night at the casino and he goes, how do I get into this? I want to be a, a referee. And I was like, same way I did. They trained me to be a wrestler, even though I was just a referee, you know, at the time, cause I was so young and so pitifully undersized in Jersey, but I knew he would have to take all the bumps and back bumps and, you know, besides right, he gets right, to learn right, something. Yeah. It's cool. You know, you learn how to reverse a hammer, you know, a topper lock, hammer lock, tight waist lock, side head lock, hammer lock. By the way, he's a really good referee, and I had I had a great time every time I was around him. We took him home one night, and he lived uh, – He, you could go one way in Memphis, or you could go the other way. The other way was through Orange Mountain. The wrong side of tracks. <laughs> yeah, and he said – Richard said, BT – what the hell are we going this way for? And I go, it doesn't bother me to go through Orange Mound. He's like, well, it bothers me. I don't want to go through Orange Mound. I'm like, okay, okay, buddy. And so we coming got from him, that means something. Yeah, <laughs> coming that from him, that means a lot. He was scared to go through it, but yeah, it was a uh, Orange Mound in that area at one time. <laughs> this was maybe 20 years ago. They didn't even have in indoor plumbing. They didn't Ooh. have indoor plumbing at Orange Mound. You had to have like an outhouse. And I was like, really? it sounds Come it on. sounds like a lot, 
Sounds like a lot of the venues that Charlie Parks had ran. I was like, I didn't even find these places in Memphis. Where do I take a piss at? So yeah, yeah. So you start doing TAJJ. Now this is this is yeah. I was I was putting out. Me and me and Rashad together noticed there was a bunch of dark areas that nobody had ran, and I would watch old Memphis tapes and I'd be like, nobody's really running Brownsville. Nobody's really running. You know, some of these Hornbeak towns, like a lot of these towns have went dark for, for so long. He brings, you know, he has the Dyersburg guys. So every Saturday night we're going to Dyersburg and everything. So me and Rashad start running our own house shows. West Memphis, Arkansas, the Boys and Girls Club. We drew really well there. Um, we're we're going and going. And then I'm past putting out flyers and this guy calls me up and he goes, uh, yeah, me and my friends do a local access show called TAJJ, and my name is Christopher Woodruff. My name is Chris Lex. And so I went down there, and I checked it out, and it was, you remember backyard wrestling, like everybody, you know, these were a bunch of pretty much untrained kids, but they had integrated, like uh, Charlie Laird was going there, you know, the old Memphis job guy, so it was great seeing Charlie again. So I brought in, like, the Johnny Mortons, Alki Hawks, all my buddies from all doing all the area independence and so i walked into tajj and the first thing i saw by the announcer's table was um busted up garbage cans chairs all these hardcore wrestling and i was like all of that's gotta go that's why this place is such a horrible and i knew that danny dunn was best friends with lawler because Adam Dunn, as a kid, would show up to the studio. I remember him, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, it's that same kid. Did but he he's produce got own... T-A-J-J? Yeah, he owned it. That was at Danny Dunn Transmission Shop in Memphis off of Summer Avenue, right across from the adult theater. <laughs> right, right, right. It was a big sponsor of Memphis Wrestling. And then, so his son is doing uh, this uh, – independent and it was uh local access it ended up having a lot of guys reno diamond you yes. you talk about it. johnny morton the entire uh, the Chris entire Rags. charlie oh. yeah the entire charlie parks uh yep. cruel guy was already there yeah um wow boy those names Blaylock, the Blazer, uh, just everybody. Oh, all those yes. guys I, I'm still there. friends with him. Yeah. A huge uh, Dallas Cowboy fan. Blaylock is. And, I know. And some of the friends. most hysterical, uh, some of the most hysterical Facebook posts you'll ever see on this planet. So, yeah, uh, I went in there. They integrated. Now, this Memphis had no TV at the time. Cable access and what we were doing was the only thing before Corey Macklin started up his wrestling from the church. It looked like it was from the basement uh, of channel um, uh, channel 30. Remember that? As yes, you were going yes, over somewhere, yes. you'd have to go down the yeah. this corporate empire. Corey, did you go and work for Corey after he came? Because I don't remember. I was just providing them with a lot of the old VHS and everything that you saw on there. But by that point, it was 2003, 2004, and I was... I started to routinely go back to, you know, I was like training guys to wrestle because that, that was the ring from the movie, big city, big money hustlers, the insane clown posse movie. Right. So these backyard kids got together and 
it started out on a trampoline in like Adam Dunn's backyard or some of these kids' backyard. And they eventually bought a $3,000 ring that was left over in an auction from the movie Big Money Hustlers. So that was T-H-A-J. And at the time, I didn't tell anybody because I thought nobody will believe me, even though I have VHS of it. I'm under a mask. So no one's going to believe that I'm one of the Uchu Meijin powers or that I wrestle as Leatherface in Japan. No one's going to believe I'm one of the mummies. No one's going to believe that I'm one of the demonoids. All those mask gimmicks that I just explained to you was a place called IWA Kokosai. IWA Kokosai would have a group of mummies, white mummy, black mummy. Um, they eventually had a blue and a red mummy, iron mummy. Um, and then the same thing with Demon Oyas, and then Uchu Meijin X, Uchu Meijin XX, Uchu Meijin XXX, and so on and so forth. Well, they would bring them out in like a big bushel basket, almost like a baby's like playpen. And when you wrestle for them, different groups were using the same gimmicks because, believe it or not, Mick Foley talks about the Uchu Meijin in his book about alien invaders from outer space. And you would have to bring that stuff home bring it back to the next spot show. There was no actual tours done from these Japanese Indies that were springing up everywhere. So um, I kind of kept it to myself and just continued to go to Japan. And cause you know how many times you met people in the locker room and they're like, yeah, I was the executioner in the WWF in 1995. And you're just like, right, there was uh, a, and you know, <laughs> I do know, I know you was doing all that kind of stuff, but then you, what made you go from that? You're doing all this Japanese. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up the podcast with uh we're gonna bring you back and talk about Japan and the whole deal with Anita and all that. But I wanna know this is what this is the first time we met, uh when you started running shows and how yeah, popular I this okay, so but let me say something in between all of this and behind the scenes, Tony is becoming you have a hell of a Memphis wrestling all over the place collection of matches. You have videotapes. You, you're the guy to go to if you're trying to find something. You know, there was me. I One time I saw videotapes, there was a guy by the name of uh, uh, John McAdam who who actually sold oh, yeah. Memphis wrestling. To, to that Tony guy, his, his tape list was the most interesting. When you read the tidbits yeah. he put on his yeah. tape list. You would learn something new. I was like, oh, my God, this guy used to be a job guy back in the day. Like, how the hell did he get yeah, his push? Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> like, who yeah. else? Rob Feinstein was selling tapes at the time, too. Uh, he and so I had all... the longest. When Onita came back here to America. And we yes, did the we're going to talk about that Arena. next time. We're going to talk about that yeah. next time. So, cave pavement right, right now. Cave pavement. Yeah, well, that's cool. <laughs> so, but tell me about so cool your... Because- you decided to go to doing hardcore matches in a bar. What gave you that idea? Okay. And I love how that whole thing came together real quick. The thing with Feinstein, um, he had to put together that me under my legal name. I was the same guy that would buy and trade tapes with them way 30 years ago. Right. Right. When it was almost like it just like (laughs) it almost like it blew his mind. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. I remember that. Um, so what I did was in Japan, um, in between tour, you could stay in between tours if you can, if you feel like it, like, you know, you latch on to a WWS who does tours, you latch on to an FMW who to this day continues to do tours. And so to stay in between tours, 
I would do some of the smaller shows. They're all Japanese independent wrestling is always labeled as what's called sleaze. It's a terminology that popped up in the mid nineties for anything that was a Japanese outlaw, Japanese independent. And, you know, with guys that aren't very good, they've had a lot of training, but they just suck. <laughs> they garbage. haven't been called also, up. It was called garbage wrestling, sleaze wrestling, trash wrestling. That was the, the term. Garbage referred did. more to hardcore and deathmatch because oh, it's yeah, Ricky, yeah, yeah, Ricky yeah. Toshu saw the success. He saw FMW was out drawing New Japan and All Japan at the time. So Ricky Choshu yeah. went to the press and said, you know, I realize that I've been ostracized because I'm Korean, half Korean or whatever. He goes, but what you people are witnessing, he's like, this is just garbage wrestling. And only just garbage wrestling. It's garbage. Yep, but yep. the tape traders labeled it as sleaze. And that's what I was doing. I was wrestling in the bars and it's like a bohemian setting. These Japanese people are with long stem cigarettes and um, very bohemian, like very strange culture setting. No ring, it, no ring whatsoever. Yeah. And it doesn't translate well here. Everybody sees no ring and they go, ah, oh, it's backyard wrestling. Then if you remember years ago, it became the in thing. Joey Ryan was packing out all these bars all over the place with his bar championship wrestling. So um, I did a bunch of Tobitas, SPWC Tobita. If you don't know, Survival Tobita, Masaru Tobita has amassed a humongous cult following because he doesn't just fight aliens. He fights extraterrestrial Japanese guys dressed as poor and cheap outfits. And this is out there on the internet. And I must have a billion videos of it because I'm a lot of the monsters under the mask. <laughs> so um, I saw that and I was like, at the time in Memphis, I was co-managing a gothic nightclub. I was financing all their equipment. One guy left the other guy. Uh, we had 80s night at Liquid Lounge over on Highland Avenue. And then we had um, uh, upstairs at Zinni's, uh, which is like, which is off of Summer and McLean. Um, small, small bar there. You know, I was, so we had it going two nights a week or whatever. I start bringing back all the VHS and showing them all this weird, wacky sleaze wrestling, no ring, guys bleeding, just sleaze it's sleaze it's meant to exploit you know pro wrestling for hey, whatever I mean, you know let's, let's be honest tony you was trying to sell the tapes to him too come on tell me tell me that's what yeah that's that on top of it yeah sure <laughs> that and me going hey you know this is my latest work from from japan <laughs> check this out and to explain this to somebody and actually give them a vhs and then come back to you and go what the hell was that you know i was like a, a man wrestling you in did. In that's what you did with yeah. your shows that if someone got a VHS of your shows in, when you were doing sex and violence, right? Is that what it was called? Yeah. It, they would say, what the fuck is this? What is this yeah. guy doing? And you contacted, uh, I was doing a wrestling, a riot online.com at the time. We talked on a, still talked on a regular basis. I had never met. You said, I'm bringing your boy psycho in you come on yeah. down and, I want you to be, and I was in, I wrote a whole story about this on the side. I'll have to give a link to it, but I was yep. in awe because me and you both were huge Onita fans. We knew what he did with hardcore and how he got people in, but you had. And when the, the thing about cycle was between him and 
David Testes, Estes, whatever his friggin' name. Pappy, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pappy, the little guy they used to bring around too. They were about the only people. There were people that were willing to do hardcore. Uh, Big Country was one of them too. Chris Frazier was there, and Chris Frazier goes, you're fucking crazy. I'm, I, right. I can't, <laughs> you know. And that show paid better than the area independence, but Psycho, I told him, I was like, yeah, this is absolutely brutal and this is going to chew you up and spit you out but you know at the time i don't have any tattoos i got a million piercings but um i was like the the scars themselves look pretty cool for whatever i'm doing overseas anyway and it was a way for me to keep active and and wrestling but uh we were going into the little dive bars and by the time i left memphis and sold motley the ring that i had and everything the new daisy over on beale street was giving us twenty five hundred dollars every month and then the other place, because um, the rally point wound up getting shut down. But the other place, uh, the Buccaneer, who was, that has since burned down to the ground, um, they were giving us 1500 bucks a month. That's 4K a month. So that's when I, you know, n- regardless of what we drew, I needed guys. So I was going to CZW, and I was going to Ian Rotten and those guys, and I was going, I need guys to do this because – Right, 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 because there's not many. guys in the area that's going to do this so hardcore that uh, – and we're yeah. talking glass, thumbtacks, boards, trash cans. Uh, and then the Which, sex part of the violence is you had these uh, uh, girls that were almost completely naked – uh, yeah. wrestling each other in uh what was it we had an old match one night and uh and i we was, had them wrestling jello yeah this yeah. girl was uh man and they were hot to, trashy hot i'm sorry if you if you're listening <laughs> yeah. to the podcast you were trashy hot but i was backstage and me and psycho are standing there and one of the girls was talking to us and and she was adjusting everything. And as we were standing there, we got a show. We was like, damn, you know, uh, but then she gets out there and they pull each other's clothes almost completely off. So you're, I was witnessing something that I don't know. It was never something that I had witnessed before. And I don't think <laughs> I ever have the idea that this it is was- professional <laughs> wrestling, but it is. It is something totally. You know, every time that those girls, because, you know, I was at the club. So girls were, here's gothic chicks. I mean, right, so right, right, right. Yeah. Everything's fair game. Girl, 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 guy, two girls, one guy, two girls, one cup, all of it. You know, it's just, it. <laughs> but um, the hardest part was telling those girls, you know, it's, it's fake, right? You guys just work out your own little routine. They didn't get it. They would just go in there and start beating the hell out of each other sometimes. And I'm like, it's a work, but how do you explain that to a normal, you know, but, uh, I'll never forget this. As long as I live, Pondo notices the girl that works in, because by this point, you know, things are rolling enough. We didn't have an actual, the actual office was like me sitting with all this right, VHS. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Pondo comes to me and uh, Psycho too. Psycho was another one that that really had an eye for, uh, the, we called it the assault fairy because as bloody and cut up as I would be, this chick would run out with a bucket of salt and dump the bucket of salt. And I know all this sounds crazy looking back to me. It's flesh wounds to me, you know. Also to throw in there at the time, I wound up with jawline cancer right here. Damn, <laughs> That's why I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, I didn't remember yeah, anything about that. Ever notice my face is lopsided 
and I don't hide it from anybody. This side is significantly smaller than this side because I have no bone here and a giant hole from jawline cancer. Anyway, I don't advise anybody who contracts cancer uh, to do death matches or anything like that. But um, at the time, too, I was going with Viscera and I was trying to get a, a job as a WWE commentator. And the minute that I got the facts two days before Christmas saying, uh, we no longer need your services, yada, yada. This is like late 2006. That's when I just went straight into the whole sex and violence thing and ran my first show on my birthday. Uh, cheap way to draw people. But um, I'll never forget this as long as I live. So everybody fell in love with the girl that was the assault fairy, Cat, And everybody was just nuts over her. And I, and I would tell them... You got as good a chance as anybody. I don't care how fat. I don't care how ugly you are. Everybody's got as good a chance as anybody else, but there's a catch to it. And I explained, you know, she's married. And they're like, she married to a girl or a guy? And I'm like, a guy. And they're like, and Pondo put it best to you. He was like real nervous. And he, well, does, does he have to be there? And I'm like, yeah, that's the catch. <laughs> now you know why I don't sleep with her. <laughs> if I remember right, I thought she was your girlfriend or your wife at the time. I can't remember. This girl that you, no, you had ran, you ran across because um, extremely hot. You, she was extremely hot. The girl you was with that time. Yeah, the and that was one of the funny things. Nobody, like a lot of the fans, didn't put that together because um, nowadays you couldn't do it. But when I repromised the whole thing from Ron Head and J.R. Benson, two more guys who were the newsletter guys. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, later yeah. On, later on, they worked for Cornette and Smoky Mountain. When I brought back the whole Ku Klux Clown thing, I mean, what's better than That's seeing someone Johnny like Legend, that? That's Johnny Legend, right? That was from Legend. Yeah. Didn't he do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the token hot black chick that would – lick all the blood and shit off of me and everything when I would do that gimmick and bleed and everything. That was my wife. <laughs> so, I thought it was. Yeah, she was hot as hell. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, the so mother of my oldest. Uh, which, incidentally enough, 2009, that's 2009, 2010, that's pretty much what caused me to leave Memphis was uh, I lost her to stomach cancer and um, everything around Memphis reminded me of her. So I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. That and I got robbed at gunpoint. I'm like, okay, oh, now I I'm really done. need to yeah. sell this I house. I got almost robbed one time because I I got out of my car and went to get ketchup from the drive-through window. And the guy got mad at me and pulled a gun on me. So uh, that was in Memphis. That was a great time, Tony. I tell you what, we're gonna wrap it up right here because that's where your Memphis stuff ends. Uh, we're you gonna give stick all. A pin in it. We're gonna <laughs> give, yeah. Let's put a pin in. We're gonna give all the information. Um, about Tony's, uh, you can reach Tony, blah, blah, blah. He still has a connect, uh, collection of, uh, of videos that he would be nice to, he would sell them to you, especially sex and violence. You still have that? Hard drives. Oh, they're Five all hard drives five, now. Yeah. And he has the sex and violence thing. Let me just put a pin in it after I say this. It become your underground, I'm set. BT, I'm selling hundreds of these fucking DVDs every time I do a show. And I'm like, what? You said, yeah, was, that, there's extra yeah. money that no one is seeing. But you were selling like hundreds of those DVDs. You had a you had a, a fan base, didn't you? 
Yeah, and it was this. It turns into a weird cult, and it's so funny because to this day, Japanese find out about that stuff online about because it was me doing all the wacky gimmicks because we didn't have a very big talent roster. <laughs> so when you see, you know, um, right, right, right. CEO Craig Elliot Oppenheimer and this this crazy guy who's an evil lawyer and getting the shit beat out of him and you're seeing all these weird wacky gimmicks. It's me under every single one of them. <laughs> like it's it's me with a haircut. It's me with a uh, you know changing up things. But I mean, it couldn't just be me versus Psycho every single show. You know, some people put the clues together. You know, I'd stick a marble down in my boot so I'd walk different or whatever. But Everybody knew it was me collecting the scars and taking the beatings. And I thought the one of the funniest things is the, the girl, the assault fairy showed me one time was a text from psycho. And he said, if you woke up next to me, what would you think? <laughs> and she's like, how should I respond? I go, "Ew, you want me to respond to psycho? What the hell, man? But yeah, it was, uh, it had its time and place. Now everything is so torrented and, and shared with everybody. I'll show you, show you one thing before you completely put a pin in it. Can you imagine what this is right here? See how big it is? Yeah. Try to take one guess of what that is. I have no idea. All mm, the DVDs, they're already, they're already burned. All the DVDs are burned. Are they sexual violence? No, I can't, I can't read that. So it's Memphis Paychecks from oh, the seven. Let me see. Let me see. That's Bill Dundee right there. And the cool thing is, you get a free autograph on the back because oh, obviously that's people, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So this is like uh, December thirtieth, nineteen seventy-eight. If you're not watching the video, it, he's got a huge stack of uh, canceled checks. Uh, of all the Memphis area, and I bet you, Tony, I bet you'd sell them, wouldn't you? Yeah, and it's one of those things that I've wanted to hold on to. There's there's several things that I still have here that are personally of value to me myself that I'll never get rid of. I told myself if the right offer came along for something like this, but obviously I'd uh I'd split some of the money with Rooster. You know, um, man, do you remember Paul Neighbors Jr. Not Paul I Neighbors, did. the referee. His son, yeah. Junior. I don't remember him. I know Paul, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul Neighbors, Junior, he was one of the interns. He was the intern, like in 92 on Memphis TV. Yeah. Um, he was, Jerry Jarrett was going to his attic, came across those and gave them to him. And he was like, I got these. David Milliken has the other half of them. Oh, David awesome. Milliken's that's got awesome. the other half that's got Hulk Hogan, Jerry Lawler's checks. I got Bill Dundee and every name that you can imagine passed through Memphis. <laughs> through this All right, guys. Tony, we're going we're pinned on it. We're gonna talk a little bit about a couple of things on Patreon <laughs> yeah. we're gonna talk about is at Tony's show, I did two things that I've never done together at any <laughs> other wrestling show ever. And I'll tell the story. I know what they same are. Same bad time, same bad channel. <laughs> on the best little wrestling podcast in the business. Be there, and as everyone knows, and Tony knows this, I love my mama. We are Memphis Wrestling. Join us live. 
Sunday, May 28th, is our next free watch party at Dave & Buster's. Watch AEW Double or Nothing with us. It's free. That's Dave & Buster's in Memphis. Sunday, June 4th, is our next live TV taping at the Wrestle Center. Experience the stars of Memphis Wrestling live. June 25th is on sale soon. Saturday, July 1st, watch WWE Money in the Bank with us. It's free at Dave & Buster's in Memphis. Tickets are on sale now. Get yours right now at ChampionshipWrestlingMemphis.com. Remember, all episodes, Memphis in May, go to stspod.club. Be there! This episode is also brought to you by SpunkLoop.com. Remember, when you're getting funky like a monkey... Know what I mean? You spunky. That's right. Go to www.spunkloop.com and tell them STS Pod sent you. You want the best? You got the best. The best little wrestling podcast in the business. All episodes on www.stspod.club. Did you enjoy that episode? Cash app us at dollar sign B-T-S-T-S. If you've never downloaded the Cash App app, download it today. You'll get a free, that's right, a free $5 for using the code dollar sign B-T-S-T-S. That's dollar sign B-T-S-T-S. That was another great episode of Shooting the Shiznit. Thank you for listening, and thank you to all our sponsors. A big shout-out to Bob McGee at Pro Wrestling's Between the Sheets. Remember, you can reach us on Twitter at ComicBookMarkBT, Instagram at BT Shooting the Shiznit. That's right, Shooting the Shiznit without a G. Facebook Shooting the Shiznit, and Facebook Cool Kids Wrestling and MMA Talk. If we don't like you in that group, first you have to ask to get in. If we don't like you, we'll kick you out. All of the episodes are at one place, and that's www.stspod.club. Podcast Roll Call. Who's Right Podcast. Homeboys Podcast. D3 Radio, my buddies Richard and Josh. My World with Conrad Thompson and my friend Jeff Derrick. Lance's favorite include Nickology, Rock Solid, Playlist Wars. I'm Fat Podcast. Hey guys, remember, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars.